As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, by the Holy Spirit, through the word preached, open our eyes so that we may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to you, that we may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's Word to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 8, verse 11. You'll find that on page 1073 in many of the Pew Bibles. The book of Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. We've come to Mark chapter 8, verse 11, and we're just going to read three verses, 11 through 13 together and consider what the Holy Spirit has to say to his church. So Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 11, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, that is Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, I don't know how much you pay attention to the sermon titles I put in the bulletin. Uh, maybe I don't want to know how much attention you, you pay them. Um, but the title of our sermon this morning is The Tragedy of This Generation. Um, and maybe if you read that, you thought you should prepare yourself for me to launch into a screed um, about the problems of this generation, a kind of old man, get off my lawn type sermon. Um, I don't know if that's what you expected. I don't even know if you read it. Um, but the tragedy of this generation, the this generation that we want to consider is the generation Jesus is speaking of in his word here. The tragedy of this generation that comes to dispute with him and demand from him a sign. Um, and we want to look at this as a tragedy of how these, these men come and they dispute with Jesus, uh, demanding from him a sign. Uh, this is the second dispute with Jesus in as many chapters. Chapter 7 found the Pharisees coming and, and having a conflict with Jesus over his practices of purity that they didn't like. They had a conflict with him there. And now in this chapter, they have a conflict with him again, this time over a sign that they demand from him. Um, and in the course of Mark telling this story, it has an important function for the 12 disciples who hear this story, hear what Jesus said to them, and in the very next section, show that they don't understand what they've heard and they fail to appreciate what they've been taught. And so in some ways, Mark tells this story with an eye to the 12 disciples and what they need to continue to learn from Jesus. I would initially intended to take all of these verses together, this section and the next one, uh, but I quickly found as I wrote up my notes that it was going to be way too long. Um, and so there's, there's definitely a purpose Mark has here for the 12 disciples who need to learn something about the leaven of the Pharisees and how to avoid it. But certainly there is something the Lord wants us to understand from these verses as well. These come as a cautionary tale to everyone who hears them not to end up like the Pharisees. Uh, now, I say cautionary tale, boys and girls. What is a cautionary tale? 
Well, maybe you know the cautionary tale of the boy who cried wolf. Right? He cried wolf when there was no wolf, and he did it again and again. He thought it was very funny to watch everyone come running. And then what happens in the story? Finally, a wolf comes, and he calls everyone, telling a wolf has come, and nobody believes him. Um, and it's a, it's a tale meant to teach you a lesson, uh, to warn you against lying, right? And to be sure you tell the truth. That's what a cautionary tale is. It's one that teaches you a lesson and warns you not to do something. Um, Mark Twain thought there were so many cautionary tales going on in America at his time that he wrote a sort of funny story that was kind of an anti-cautionary tale. It was entitled, The Bad Little Boy Who Never Came to Any Harm. Um, and it was all about a bad little boy, and everything w- worked out just fine for him. And at the end of the story, he becomes a U.S. senator. Um, so he was making fun of that cautionary tale. Uh, there's nothing funny about this cautionary tale, however. This is a lesson that Mark wants us to learn from the tragic error of the Pharisees and not to end up as they do. And so that's how we want to understand this cautionary tale that's being told to us in Mark. And we'll see here a sinful demand that they make of Jesus, and then a serious response that Jesus makes to this sinful demand, and we'll see the sincere call that comes to all of us who hear this story not to end up as the Pharisees did. So that's how we want to think about this text together, a sinful demand, a serious response, and a sincere call. Um, Our text begins, as we said, with another conflict with the Pharisees. We find the Pharisees coming again to Jesus. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Um, They come to dispute with Jesus once again. Um, It's another conflict. It's um, a conflict of these same people, as we said we saw in chapter 7. And we shouldn't lose sight of who we were told they were in chapter 7. We need to have what Jesus said about them in our minds so that we properly understand and remember who these men are. Uh, Who are these Pharisees? Jesus has said they are hypocrites. Uh, They are pretenders. They pretend to be servants of God, but aren't. Uh, They pretend to be concerned for holiness and righteousness before God, but they really aren't. They are the people, as Jesus said, who always demonstrate a fatal disconnect between their outward actions and the inward states of their hearts. Right? Outwardly, they are scrupulously detailed in their attention to the traditions they've established, thinking that that shows the degree of their devotion to God. Outwardly, they're very devoted, but inwardly, their hearts are far from God. Inwardly, they are devoted to their own self-righteousness, their own power, their own prestige, their own position in the world, and they care little for what God's word actually requires and certainly are not doing it for the glory of the God they claim to serve. That's who these men are. That's who they are who come and argue with him. Uh, That's what they come to do in verse 11. They come to argue with him. Uh, It's a great Greek word. It means dispute, and I liked how one lexicon defined this word. It said it means to express forceful differences of opinion without necessarily having a presumed goal of seeking a resolution. Um, I thought we could just define that as Facebook, um, where people express forceful differences of opinion without necessarily having a presumed goal of seeking a solution. Um, It's the kind of people that Paul would talk about in 1 Timothy 1, 6, and 7, 
who wander away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They just come to argue with Jesus, to dispute with Jesus. These are the same people who are in league with those who said that everything Jesus does is by the power of the devil. And so it's important that we understand who these people are and what they've come to do when we come to this demand that they make of Jesus in verse 11. Uh, They come and argue with him and they do something particular. Mark says they sought from him a sign from heaven to test him. And if we remember that they are hypocrites, that they are not really devoted to the things they claim to be devoted to, we can understand the nature of this request. These are men who thought of themselves as the heirs of Moses, those to whom the law had come and who really understood it, could really explain it to people who were really committed to it, and they claimed to be doing something very biblical here. Because in the law, in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 13 and in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord established tests for the trustworthiness of a prophet. That if someone came and claimed to speak a word of God, there should be a confirmation, a sign that would confirm that he spoke for God. And if there wasn't a sign that confirmed that he spoke for God, he ought to be put to death for falsely claiming to speak for God. And so what these pretenders are doing is coming and saying, we're very concerned for the word of God. And after all, didn't the word of God say that there's a test that you should have to pass in order for us to accept you as a trustworthy messenger? And so we demand a sign. We demand you do what the law requires you to do and show us a sign that you speak the truth. A sign from heaven. One that will confirm that you are who you say you are. Now, they say that, but what are they really trying to do? They're trying to trap Jesus in a corner. Because if he refuses to do a sign, then they can say, well, you refuse to do what the Bible requires. But what is the other alternative? He does a sign, and they say, well, you did one, but you did it by the power of the devil. So they really are not proposing something sincere, something that they will really see and believe. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to seek an excuse to discredit him and to not believe in him. And Mark really gets at the heart of what they're doing by how he describes this demand. Because he says in verse 11, they came seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They were trying to test him. And we see the sin in what, we're, in what they're doing when we see that word. Because what do we know we are not to do when it comes to God? We are not to put him to the test. It is an evil and wicked thing to do, to test God as if he needs somehow to confirm to us who he is and what he's come to do. That was what the devil tried to tempt our Lord to do by throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple. And he, what, was, what did he respond by saying? I know my father will care for me. I don't need to put him to the test because the Bible says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Mark helps us to understand the true sin behind what they are doing. They are presuming to come to the Lord himself and demand that he show them a sign. 
demand a test from God himself. And it's because of the sinfulness of this demand that that it invokes such a serious response from our Savior. That he responds so seriously to this egregious sin. And he responds by letting us know how he feels. He responds by speaking words that we might hear what he has to say about it. And he responds with an action that's very important for us to take note of. And we'll consider those things in turn. What what does the scripture tell us about how Jesus felt about this test? Well, that's described in verse 12. He sighed deeply in his spirit when they asked from a sign, saying, we need to see from you a public definitive proof that God is with you. For that sin, what does that invoke in our Savior? He sighs. It's a measure of his indignation with their unbelief, his exasperation with their unbelief, and his grief over their unbelief. Um, It shows how deeply grieved the Lord is by unbelief. When he has come to save and come to bring good news from heaven to people who need to hear it and to find him extending his hand to people who persistently slap it away. What does it invoke in our Savior? Mark is giving us a window really into our Lord's heart here about how he is grieved and how deeply he is grieved. In his spirit, he sighs. Um, I think J.C. Ryle absolutely captures this correctly, the feeling that the Lord is feeling. He says, the feeling which our Lord Jesus Christ here expressed will always be the feeling of all true Christians. Grief over the sins of others is one of the leading evidences of true grace. The person who is really converted will always regard the unconverted with pity and concern. This was the mind of David. I looked at the faithless with disgust, Psalm 119, 158. This was the mind of the godly in the days of Ezekiel. They sighed and cried over all the abominations done in the land, Ezekiel 9, 4. This was the mind of Lot. He was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds of those around him, 2 Peter 2, 8. This was the mind of Paul. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my brethren, Romans 9, 2. In all these cases, we see something of the mind of Christ. As the great head of the church feels, so feel the members. They all grieve when they see sin. Um, this, this is the Lord's attitude. This should be our attitude. I think maybe sometimes it's easier for us to be indignant and exasperated at sin and at sinners, and sometimes not so much our feeling of grief and compassion for them. And there needs to be both, um, because our Lord experienced both. Uh, both that exasperation and indignation that God would be denied in this way, but also the grief over what that meant for those who denied him. It's out of that great feeling that our Lord speaks then what he says. So we have what he feels and then also what he says to them. It explains the clear resolve with which he speaks to the Pharisees in verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? 
Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Notice that Jesus twice refers to them as this generation. And Jesus makes to them this solemn declaration. Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Um, It's a clear oath formula that Jesus uses. As one commentator pointed out, if this had been in the language of the Old Testament, his statement would have sounded something like, may God do so and more to me if ever a sign is given to this generation. Um, This sign, a sign will never be given to this generation. And we should hear something in what he says here. In that language of testing, in addressing them as the generation, as the oath, a lot of people have looked at these factors together and said, there's a clear allusion being made here to Psalm 95. That psalm that we used as our call to worship that begins so beautifully and takes a serious turn at the end, where the psalmist says to the people in Psalm 95, 7 through 11, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And a number of people have looked at that and said, here we have a test, an address to the generation, an oath. There's an allusion being made here to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 that spoke of that wilderness generation who had seen all of God's work, were the generation who had been brought out of Egypt by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, who'd crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground, who'd been fed from heaven, who'd been provided for on the way by their God. And then they came to Rephidim in the wilderness and there was no water to drink and they quarreled with God and they put him to the test and he caused water to flow from the rock. But it was that incident that would always stand out as the the singular act of rebellion of God's people in the wilderness that caused him to swear this terrible oath. And the place was called not Rephidim, but Massa and Meribah, quarreling and testing. Exodus 17 tells us, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? They'd seen all of his work, they'd heard his voice, and they had the temerity to say, Is he with us or not? And you see why the Lord tells us this story, reminds us of this story, not only in the Psalms, but in the book of Hebrews. We have a commentary on this Psalm to make sure we understand it aright. And what do we read in Hebrews 3, 16 through chapter 4, verse 2? For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. What is God's word teaching us about that generation? They saw God's work, and yet they put him to the test. Is the Lord really among us or not? And they were unbelieving, and they sinned against God, and they never entered his rest. That was the fate of that generation. And you see how Jesus is using that incident and alluding to that incident by the way he speaks to this generation, this generation of Pharisees that are before him. He says, this generation has seen my work. This generation has heard my word. You've seen the work I've done. The Pharisees did not come disputing that he did work. They said, well, sure, he does work, but he does it by Satan's power, which made no sense. But they were not denying the works he did. Those were really undeniable, given the number of people he did them for. That he cured diseases. That he helped people who were disabled and made them well. He drove out demons. Recently, as a particular proof of his being the Messiah, he has made the deaf hear. And made the dumb speak. He's already made the lame walk. He's even raised the dead. That generation had seen his work. And that generation had heard his word. Heard him speak of the gospel. The good news. That the time was fulfilled and that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And the necessity of repenting and believing in the gospel. They had seen his work, and they had heard his word, and what did they do? They quarreled with him, they put him to the test, and they said, we demand to know whether the Lord is among us or not. It's the same thing that generation did in the wilderness. This generation is doing with the Lord. And what have they revealed about themselves in this quarreling and in this testing? They have revealed that they are a people who go astray in their hearts and have not known the Lord's ways. And so in his indignation and exasperation and grief, Jesus swears that no sign will be given to this unbelieving generation. And so we see what he feels and we see what he says. And then Mark tells us what he does. What does he do after saying these things to him, to them? We're told in verse 13, and he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. After disputing with them and after rejecting their demand, what does he do? He left them. He left their disputing, he left their demands. And he left them. There's a heavy theological weight in that statement. Certainly what Mark means is that Jesus got into the boat and physically left them. He went to the other side of the lake. But there's a heavy heavy theological 
weight in what that, in those few words that Mark gives us. And Jesus left them. They came disputing, they came demanding, and he finally left them. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do to them in leaving them in their sins and in their unbelief. He makes that explicit in John 8 when speaking to the Pharisees in verses 21 and 24 when he says to them, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's this terrible reminder that unless you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you will die in your sins. You cannot find life apart from him. And that's why the call of the gospel, the call of the church, is always the same to the world, desiring that they would repent of their sins, that they would repent of their rebellion, that they would believe in Jesus Christ and find life in his name, that they would not die but live. That's always the urgent call and plea of the church to share the good news in grief over those who don't believe that they might come to the Lord and live and not die. That was the desire God expressed in the Old Testament. I've set before you death and life. Choose life. Why would you die? That's what the gospel means to do, to put before us. The call is always the same and the warning is always the same. That if you will not repent of your sins, that if you will not believe in Jesus Christ, then you will die in your sins. And this is said for the disciples' sake. Jesus will warn them in the coming verses. In verse 18, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Because people like the Pharisees think they are on God's side and think they are doing the Lord's work, but they persist in rebellion and in unbelief. And they were people who will hear in the end Jesus say to them what he says in Matthew 7, verse 23. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And why does this passage tell us this terrible story? That's why we want to end not with the serious response that Jesus gave to this generation, but with the sincere call that comes to us from passages like this. The warning that these passages give us that we might hear the call to not end up like those generations. It's always sad to read about these things, isn't it? It's sad to read about that Psalm 95 generation that rejected the Lord. It's sad to read about these men who knew so much about the Word of God and still missed the central character in it, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. It should fill us with grief to read these stories of tragedy. But why does the Bible recount them to us? It's always with this this in mind, to make sure that our generation does not end up like those generations to make sure that your generation does not end up like those generations. We're told about that generation and we're told about this generation of Pharisees in order that we might think about our generation and say to ourselves, what ought we to do in light of these things? Because the scriptures tell us, right? Why was that story in Psalm 95 told of that wilderness generation? To say to the people today, 
Today, if you hear his word, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like that generation did. And Mark chapter 8 comes to us with that same force. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like this generation did. Why does the word of God always come? The writer of Hebrews says, whoever is reading Hebrews 3 and 4, they should be hearing the Holy Spirit saying to them, today, if you hear his voice, don't be like them. Don't end up the way they ended up. That's the good news that the gospel is always bringing to us. That the story of our generation is not yet written. It's not yet written the way the story of that wilderness generation was or this wilderness generation of the Pharisees was. Our generation's story is not yet written. For us, it's still today. For you and I, it's still today. And what does the word say to us today? Today, don't be like them. Today, don't end up the way they ended up. When you hear God's voice calling you to follow, calling you to repent over your sins, calling you to believe, don't harden your hearts, but do what he's calling you to do. Right? You hear his call to repent, today is the day to do it. To acknowledge that we have rebelled against God and done what we have wanted to do rather than what he has called us to do. And to tell him that we are sorry for our rebellion. Today we can be those who do what he's called us to do and believe. Repent and believe. Put your trust in Jesus Christ, who alone can save us from our sin and rebellion. By the righteousness of his perfect life, by the payment and sacrifice of his death, offered for us on the cross by the victory of his glorious resurrection from the dead. Put your faith and trust in him who can alone do what we need done for us and who will surely do it, who will save those who put their faith and trust in him. The reason God gives us this word, the reason God continues to say to our generation, today don't end up like them, is why? It's because we have a God who is so filled with mercy and love and grace. He comes to a rebellious people and says, I don't want you to die. I want you to live. It's a manifestation of the mercy and love of our God that he continues to see to it that his gospel is proclaimed in the world. It's a measure of his love. It's a simple truth that's communicated in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And if you've listened to his call, if you've repented of your sins, if you've believed and put your trust in his son, then you can know for certain that you have peace with God now and forever. The the purpose of preaching these cautionary tales is not to scare. Sometimes hellfire and brimstone sermons are always, you know, put down because it, it, it acts as if what the purpose is always to scare people. 
And there's a certain sense in which we ought to be scared of the judgment to come if we're not ready for it. But God's purpose is never ultimately to scare or to leave you uncertain of where things stand between you and the Lord. It's not to scare, it's to save. It's so that you would know for certain what's being asked of you by your God and you would know for certain what he promises to those who follow him. He's not, he did not come to make it complicated. He did not come to make his salvation hard to understand. Repent and believe, that's it. It can be so simply stated. Repent and believe. It's as simple as we heard as our assurance of pardon this morning. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not hard to understand what God means by repent. It just means to be sorry for what you've done. It's not hard to understand what God means by believe. It means to stop trusting in something you've done for salvation and put all of your trust and hope in Jesus Christ. The message of salvation is so sure and so simple because the promise of Jesus is so sure and so simple. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Simple and sure. So is John 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Simple, sure. God will be with those who call on him. As he's promised, I will be with you and I will never leave you or forsake you. The promise is simple and sure. The call is simple and sure. And it comes to all of us asking, what will you do today? Will you be like those who hardened their hearts in their rebellion? Or will you be like those who saw the work and heard the voice and listened? and repented of their sin and rebellion, put their faith and trust in the Lord, and found rest for their souls. My prayer for all of us is that God would give us the grace and the help of his Holy Spirit so that we would all repent of our sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and find eternal life and rest with him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for making things so simple for us and for making your call so simple and so sure. And we are grieved, Lord, to think about that wilderness generation that died in their sins. We are grieved to think about this generation of Pharisees that died in their sins because they saw your work and they heard your word, and yet they hardened their hearts. But we thank you that today you come and proclaim to us that today is the day of salvation. That for those who hear, it's not too late. It's not too late, however deep has been our rebellion and turning away from God, however persistent has been our unwillingness to come to you, Lord. We know that today, if we hear your voice, if we are sorry for rebelling against you as king and setting ourselves up on the throne that only you can occupy, 
that we can put our trust in the Lord Jesus to save us from our rebellion and that he will surely save. And that those who believe in your son will find life in his name, forgiveness of sins and eternal joy and rest with you. Lord, we know that we cannot find these things ourselves, that they must be revealed to us by your spirit. And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit in power, that the word that's proclaimed here today might be effective for all who've heard it, that your word, wherever it's preached in the world today, would be effective for those who hear it, that you may receive the glory and that we might have fellowship with you forever. Help us and hear us, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.